Heute Arapuru Sounds Inga reo, inga mana, rorangatira ma, tēnā koutou katoa. This is the podcast Sonic Art in New Zealand, the democratisation of sound, for Sounds, Centre for New Zealand Music. Toiti Arapuru. Koivaradich aho. In this podcast, I'll be talking to some of our sonic artists to find out what the art form is all about, and also looking at how cheap technology has made it so much more accessible. But let's start with some history. The story of sonic art in Aotearoa really goes back to Douglas Lilburn, who had the idea of setting up our first electroacoustic studio in 1967, based at Victoria University of Wellington. Lilburn thought that if he could form a connection with the natural world by recording the sounds you hear in nature, he might find a way to find his identity as an Indigenous artist. Sounds kind of mysterious, doesn't it? Sonic art. What exactly is it? John Coulter runs the Sonic Art course based at the University of Auckland School of Music. I mean, the most simple definition is probably sound-based music. And in this case, what it means is that the sound forms the most basic compositional unit as opposed to the note. So, although the note may, of course, be seen to be the sound. So essentially, all sounds become available for art-making purposes. Sonic art sometimes gets a bad rap for being confrontational. But equally, the sounds can be almost subliminal, working at the back of your consciousness. And there's also a number of sub-disciplines within it too, so you can sort of define it by the genre. So acousmatic music is music for loudspeakers. We have multi-channel acousmatic music, or that's sometimes called spatial music. There's visual music, which includes um, virtual reality now, but visuals which are driven by sounds. We have live sonic arts, which is also known as live electronics. Uh, We have algorithmic music environmentally driven music we have intersections between sonic arts and indigenous music there's intersections with sound therapy there's all sorts of little subfields um, under that big banner of sonic arts I guess so sonic art can be almost anything how about Chris Cree Brown he taught John Coulter several decades ago does he agree Well, for me, sonic art is a way to describe the art of organising sound, which is not what is usually described as or referred to as music. I mean, there are many definitions of sonic art, but I just use sonic art to describe that way of organising sound, which is not usually referred to as music. (laughs) It's sort of an inverse, sort of negative rather than a... I mean, is it, is it because you can't define it? Is that why it's so hard to put it in words? I, I think it's very hard, and it's also different people have different ideas, and there's acousmatic music, and there's all sorts of different things. Um, art that can be uh, sonic art that can involve 
you know, sculpture or performance. There's a, it's a very wide range of things that people do in sonic art. And if you tried to list them all, you'd still miss some out, I think. So it just seems best to describe sonic art as that which is not referred to as music. And that, I think, although it's negative, does give an idea of what sonic art is. It's the other. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Well, that's my view. I mean, I'm sure there'll be many people you may talk to who will give a different definition. There seems to be a bit of a renaissance in sonic art here at the moment, especially with younger people like Flo Wilson, who found her niche while studying at the New Zealand School of Music. It kind of felt like a scientific exploration and finding new musical pathways that hadn't been tread yet, and that really excites me to this day. It still excites me. It felt like that then, and I really love it. I really love being able to gather with people and think about music and sound and the way it affects us and the way it changes culture and moves us and um, the different ways in which it presents and how people approach its sound, whether it's spatial or, you know, whether they've, um, whether it's synthesis. There's many, many layers to sound art. It's such a big sonic art. It's such a broad term. New sonic artist Sonia Waters comes from a pop and ambient music background, but she went on a real journey of discovery when she started studying sonic art with Dougal McKinnon at the New Zealand School of Music. But I guess I just feel like sonic art is, you know, just any kind of organised sound or composition using, you know, using a sonic environment, any kind of sounds that could be arranged in a way to make a composition. So it doesn't, that, to me, it doesn't fit under sort of classical jazz pop any of those more traditional forms but it could just be you know a piece of art so it could also be an installation it could be acoustic sounds like there's a guy I think I wrote his name in here Dago Stoko that just plays a tree you might see you can look him up on he YouTube. plays a tree yeah he's, with he's, some sort of with mallets or whatever field he's, he records it all with tiny microphones and he plays the leaves and he makes really cool music just on this tree that's imagination <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. So it can encompass anything? Well, to me, I feel like it can encompass anything, as long as it's a composition. But then on the other hand, if you look at John Cage's music, I mean, he's just recording the sound of traffic. And I really get, I really got into you know, his philosophy at one stage where he doesn't want sound to talk to him, like he doesn't want words, he doesn't want kind of events that are like emotions, he'd rather just have abstract sound. Um, and I started feeling, when I was studying, I started feeling like that too. I was like, I don't want a song. I just want to listen to some sound and have it be interesting and sort of draw me into it. to wonder how many different directions sonic art can go in. John Coulter sees no boundaries. It also has a, a bit of a, a um, political dimension to it because essentially it rejects the dominant Western contemporary composer's stance and that is primarily concerned with the production of a score and a defined set of instruments. It says 
my palette is much larger than that. My palette is all sound. Then there are people like Ruby Solly, one of the new generation of sonic artists who seems to find her own whakapapa of sound going back to nature. Ruby grew up in both Te Ao Māori and the Pākehā music worlds. She learnt cello and tongapūra from a young age. She uses his tongapūra, the old Māori instruments, in her music therapy job, but she's also an improviser, working with all types of other musicians. So is this another form of sonic art, I wonder? I've never really thought of myself as a sonic artist, but then when I think about what I do, I guess it can be perceived in some ways as sonic art. I think... My partner made a joke once that I did noises and nothing, and it's now what I say when people ask me what I do. I'm like, oh, noises and nothing. But. Noises, that's it, interesting. Noises. I mean, noises can mean anything. Noises can mean anything, and that's why I really like noises and nothing. It's great, because it's like, it's, that's, it's, there's a lot of play in that label. It's like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. It's like, you can kind of just be playing with whatever you're doing. It's never like, I'm making the serious thing, and I'm putting all this pressure on myself to make a work that's going to fix a problem, because. That's a really easy thing to do too, I think, especially if you're from certain communities. Like, there's pressure on you to, I don't know, fix everything. But it's actually, you kind of fix things really, really gradually over your whole life by creating lots of work and working with lots of people. So it's quite nice to think of it in that way. But what about the role of technology, which is so often associated with sonic art? When I was young, sound art was just, uh, was kind of like, any time you made music on a computer. That's kind of like what my initial understanding of it was. And then um, I kind of, I started to get interested in what people were doing overseas and looking to New York and Berlin and Darmstadt and all of those kinds of practices. That's Marcus Jackson, a sonic artist who likes working outside the more traditional concert venues. Sound art, in my mind, is kind of presented in many places as well as the concert hall but it but not necessarily the concert hall it can be so not restricted by place not not restricted by place not not restricted by kind of um that like that cultural context of we sit down and we you know we're lower than the stage and we kind of look up (laughs) yeah up pretty much unless you know you've got the money and you sit all the way at the back and you look down you know like sometimes and I mean, and do you think is that a liberating aspect of it, not being constrained by being in that sort of environment? It is, it is, but it's also you kind of open up new ways of, or different ways. I shouldn't say new ways, but different ways of um, engaging with the audience because they're not. It's not this like uh, the separation active, between them. passive thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. About lack of separation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can. They can become part of the piece. You can become part of the audience. It can become this shared experience um yeah where there's just it's breaking down a hierarchy in my mind at least and is that what's Um, interesting for you to break down the hierarchies and and what to see what happens in that space in between to me yeah definitely part of the beauty of sound art and and doing these things in these new contexts is that when you strip back that contextual layer of i sit down and i listen um it becomes i think much more exciting for for the audience and for performers For 
For Auckland composer Flo Wilson, the physical environment plays a big role in how she works. A lot of music starts for me from singing it and humming it around the house. Um, and the way that that's integrated into my sound art practice um, was I, I had a loop pedal project called Foxtrot for a number of years. Um, that was at the same time that I was studying and that was really about exploring techniques that I was interested in. I went and really tried out a number of different things and the way the thing that really um, spoke to me was multi-channel sound installations um, and performance as well. So that's what that means is creating pieces of music for uh, a number of speakers, usually four or more. Um, great if it's more. What, what I really like about that is, you know, we, we may only have two ears, but we perceive sound as a 3D space. And I think musically that presents some really interesting ideas about what, what a sound listening experience is. It doesn't have to be the classic concert hall, um, you know, watch the performer on the stage and the sound is coming in front of you. I... I like to think of it more that everyone is, has a moment to be the conductor where they're totally surrounded by all the instruments and the, um, the instruments and the performers and the players and here's a little bit of everything. So um, I th I'm really interested and have pursued the spatial line of inquiry. back to those early days at Victoria University, Ross Harris is one of the composers working in the electroacoustic studio with Lilburn, looking for a music language that came from here. Well, it was a new thing. It was the latest thing. Um, <laughs> as a composer who wasn't, had no particular reputation, it was very hard to get anything performed. And so here was a place where you actually worked with the, um, the sounds, you know, the finished product. You went out of the studio with a, with a piece that existed. Uh, didn't have to worry about any performers to get it coming to life. So that was, that was a real bonus at that stage. And also one's interested in what processes were possible, new ways of treating sounds and the like. But I did like the sort of isolation of it, the just sitting in the studio beavering away. I, I really liked that. So. Did you know what you were making or what you were doing? Or was it all experiment? <laughs> well, well, yeah, pretty experimental, of course, although... I mean, through Douglas's influence, I, I was conscious that one might need to have something that belonged, like a kind of New Zealand thing. I was very much part of that world that Douglas had developed, um, and using the electronic music studio as a way of creating something by using environmental sounds, uh, bird sounds and so forth, that did belong here. You could create something which wasn't like, I think he talked about a Mozart string quartet once when he was 
halfway up the main trunk line saying it didn't seem very relevant to New Zealand. So these sounds um, for in the studio and the way they were treated could be a new, a new way of creating a music that belonged here. And I was very much part of that. While Ross Harris was finding his feet as a composer working in Wellington, in Christchurch, Chris Cree Brown began his own musical journey. John Cousins was a uh, a very inspiring teacher, and uh, he opened my eyes and my ears to new ideas and new sounds, and I just took it with both hands and ran with it. It was fantastic those early years at the University of Canterbury. Had he been teaching there for long? And, and cause, I mean, you know, it was quite a new um, discipline, really, teaching sonic art or teaching electroacoustic or whatever it was he called his course. Well, in actual fact, he didn't have a course in it. And I think he didn't have a course um, on purpose because he wanted to keep it out of the academic system. I think I'm right in saying this so as that it would have more, uh, be more real and have more relevance. In other words, you did it because you loved it rather than doing it because you might get some credit for a course. What was that like? I mean, were there any rules? Was it something very experimental? What was the sort of parameters you worked in the studio under? Well, there were virtually no rules whatsoever. Um, all the rules were, were really, you go in there, you work, and you try and create a work of art that uh, made sense in itself. And the discussions that we used to have in those days, we always used to meet up, you know, there would be John Rimmer and Ross Harris and Jack Body and me and John, and we'd just sit for hours um, talking about music and drinking lots of wine, I might add. (laughs) And what do you think attracted you to this particular form of expression creatively, Chris? Well, I think there's many things. One is that you're the performer as well as the composer, so you can place things exactly at the point you want to um, in the time domain, exactly where you want to. And another reason is, is that the sonic palette is absolutely wide open. You're not limited to a number of specific pitches or a number of, you know, specific durations. You can simply put anything you want in the field of sound and create a a new sonic world which you invite the listener to go and listen to. Brown's No Ordinary Son, which references Honi Tufari's poem about nuclear testing in the Pacific. Chris made that piece a couple of decades ago, and of course technology just keeps on changing. So do sonic artists like Sonia Waters, for instance, have a different set of rules? I don't have a rule, actually. I decided there's no rule to how it starts, so I could start with, um, you know, the field recordings of, of the wind turbines and then try and work through some sequences on the modular synths. 
Um, so what's a modulus synth for those who don't know? Um, it's... If you can describe it simply. Yeah, I'm just... Oh, okay. <laughs> it's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the modulus synths kind of generate, you know, it generates a sound um, and you can tweak those sounds and change them and alter them and f- put filters on them and so you can actually start to sculpt the sound uh, through the modular synths and a lot of them are self-generating though I'm not using that particular uh, facility I'm actually using more of an ostinato in my work where I've created uh, some sequences and they um, often play at different tempos um, but they seem to work together somehow which felt really unnatural at first I was like oh this is not can't be music if it's out of time but then I started actually really because Dougal said oh why does it have to be in time and that just was like wow okay really that's liberating isn't I it I know <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wow. so you're starting with so you've got your um, field recording and you're yeah. putting it through your modular synth and you're seeing how you might want to stretch or compress or elongate or alter um, the pitches yeah Yep, and or I can just leave them and they can run side by side or they can layer on top of each other. rehearsing a play you know you're directing yourself <laughs> it took you got, a while you know, you've got all these different actors haven't you yeah <laughs> it's my new band <laughs> yeah, that's right and they're eminently controllable they, they are is that what's good about it the control aspect that you can change things alter things yeah I felt like that was actually part of uh, a thing that I enjoyed was just suiting myself Things that I liked. I mean, I love being in a band and, co- and you know collaborating with people too. But just really nice to not have to compromise all the time with other people. And then, you know, it's nice to just go. I like this. I like this, and I'm going to do this. While the world hunkered down last year, Ruby Solly was busy at home recording her first album, Poniki. All his skills as a Tongapura player, composer and cellist all coming together through something as simple as her iPhone. But what I find interesting is how her sensory world interacts with technology. It's a timeless space where all those things interconnect and I think that's what I try to play from is this kind of timeless space where you're playing with the sounds of the past and with the sounds of the present and the sounds of the future and all the variations that people believe in within that space. And I think that Pornike actually does that quite well because all the ones that I felt didn't do that, I was like, nah, I'm not putting that on. <laughs> like the Red Rocks one, nah, not going on. And yeah, and because I was doing it just for myself initially, I think I could really feel like if something wasn't working, I wouldn't push it out to try to get a record like I was just trying to trying to figure out playing both in a technical sense and in a like a way to a sense as well. Interesting for me thinking about what you just said because you've got the um, the Tongapura which relate back generations upon generations but have been rediscovered in the last what, 50, 60 years possibly. Mm. Then you've learnt cello and other Western instruments. Yeah. You're a poet 
And then you've also got technology. Yeah, technology's funny. The past to the present. Yeah, 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 there's a lot a lot going on. And I think it's quite cool to show young Māori using modernism, like modern technology, doing stuff, because we quite often get people being like, oh, well, you wouldn't have that if Pākehā came here. And there's often this really weird thing against modernism for for young Māori. So I think it's it's nice to be able to be like, yeah, this is me and I'm using this technology and I'm making it work this way. And also it's quite cool to have done it all myself as well. Like I've like I definitely didn't do it all myself. Um, Al did the mixing, which is fantastic, and Lee Preble did the mastering, which is also fantastic. But all the recording, all the arrangements, all the location sourcing, all of that stuff was done by me. And I think that's quite cool because there's kind of up before now, before that kind of bedroom producer thing, there's always been this implication that you need all this help to do a record, and I actually recorded it on my phone. That's Ruby Solis' Ponicky, which she recorded on her iPhone at her home in Ponicky, Wellington, last year. I started this podcast thinking about Douglas Lilburn recording the sounds of nature to try and help him find his identity as an Indigenous composer, and I wondered if connection with the natural world was still important for our sonic artists today. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've always been um, deeply fascinated with nature, and uh, I grew up in, in the Nelson area. And every weekend we were off somewhere doing something. I suppose that had a lot to do with it. And I've spent a great deal of time in Kahurangi National Park um, over the years. So um, a major driver in my practice has been an attempt to capture or recreate that sort of sense of awe and beauty when I feel that I'm out in the bush or watching a sunset or watching waves crashing on the beach. That aspect of, of nature and appreciation of it is, is something that I've, I've studied for most of my life, I guess. Mm. Um, and it's something that's deeply embedded in my, my approach to life in general and my family life and everything else. And now you've moved back to the Nelson region so you can be closer to that uh, inspiration. Exactly, yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I imagine there's been a strong pull there, a physical pull to get back to, I don't know, your Taranga Waiwai. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, we live in uh, Collingwood, Golden Bay. We've just moved back there. We've been there for about six months now, but it's. Um, I feel as though I belong in that place, and... Um, I feel a sense of groundedness and connectedness with the land. We, we overlook Kahurangi National Park and, of course, we're very close to Abel Tasman and absolutely surrounded in beauty. It's incredible. So what is the motivator for artists like Flo Wilson? Do Lilburn's ideas about identity still play a part or is there something else at work? You know, we have so many tools available to us to record and explore and these ideas are not, they're not beholden to an institutional um, place or they're not beheld to an institution where access is um, only, you know, it's... Um, 
for those who can only afford given it. to those who who can afford it. Um, everyone has a field recorder pretty much on their phones, on their smartphones if they have one. And what I really love to see, particularly up in Auckland, is um, this explosion of um, sound art and creative exploration from the younger generations and um, people who are in Pacifica communities and um, who are tangata whenua. And I think that those spaces opening up, uh, that's something that really excites me because there was a real lack of it and the lack of that voice when I was studying. So it's it feels like the conversations to me are about identity, are so intrinsically linked with, you know, not just who I am and how I function in Aotearoa, but what is the energy of the community that I'm in and how are we all contributing to the culture? Talking to these composers, it's pretty clear to me that sonic arts are thriving here at the moment. I'd like to leave you, though, with this thought from Flo Wilson. I think for a long time, technology really was a way to um, create a lot of really exciting new work, and, or, and usually is, but when it's not accessible to a lot of people, then you really do have a... I guess like a class system within the arts world because only those who can afford their technology have the opportunity to create the work or have the opportunity to even explore or be part of the conversation and um, I think that democratisation has really hugely benefited the whole community really. I think this is one of the reasons I ended up, you know, being in the broadcasting world as well, because I believe in free access of information to anyone. Um, And (laughs) that's that's just a little aside about what I what I do for my bread and butter. But, you know, I think that also stands in the art world as well. I think ideas and spaces should be welcome to everyone to explore because I mean, without a community, really, what what else is there? This podcast was presented and produced for Sounds, Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuru, by me, Eva Radich, and Phil Brownlee, our sound engineer. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about the works or the composers mentioned, or for more information generally, go to the Sounds website, sounds.org.nz. That's spelt S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Sounds.